Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I don't understand what is like uh, good hospitality or whatever. And I don't mean that in a restaurant sense. I just mean that as human beings about like not giving some sort of special treatment or attention or care to somebody who you know really like, like save money to come to this place and is never going to be able to come back. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. I've long admired Chris Crawley's reporting at Grub Street, the food and drink arm of the great New York magazine. So it was a real treat to have Chris in to talk about his career in food media and the big stories unfolding right now in New York City. We go over some of his favorite slept on restaurants before digging into the big questions in life. Mainly, what is New York City's best slice? I hope you enjoy my talk with Chris Crawley. Chris Crawley, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hey, Matt. Great to see you. I've been wanting to have you in for a minute. I've been reading your work for a while, maybe five, six, seven years, eight years. I hope so. Well, I started at Grub Street in 2015. Yeah. In May, which is uh, the only office job I've ever had. And so the longest office job I've ever had. Yeah. But it feels like a, a much longer period of time than that. Well, you've covered New York dining and culture um, at, which is, I believe, the strongest, most successful uh, publication in the country. I love New York Magazine. I think it's obvious um, if you listen to the show and just, like, read our newsletter. We link to you all the time. Me too. (laughs) Uh, You know, in that sense, I always thought, like, uh, I felt kind of lucky to uh, get my first actual job that I wanted at a place that I looked up to. But, you know. You always wonder, where do you go after that? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. It seems like people stay there for a while because they like their jobs and are super into doing what you do. I love that you can open a story on Grub Street with the following line. I first became aware of the scourge of fake Caesar salads at Kafar, Michael Salmanov's Middle Eastern Bakery and Cafe in Williamsburg. Like, what bugs you about this, like, Caesar salad imposter <laughs> situation uh so i honestly i went there and um i just thought it was bad first of all like it didn't like taste anything like the name that it said it was <laughs> and i don't mean to be too serious like i think people shouldn't take this too seriously yeah or people online or uh readers or whatever else i think that you like it felt like the way we tried to do it felt like a sort of um like a tongue-in-cheek kind of way of going about it but you know, like, am I actually upset in the grand scheme of things about this being called a, a Caesar salad when it's not? Well, no, <laughs> but it bothered me that it, when I had it, that it was nothing like what it said it was. And it basically just tasted like a teeny and it felt like, uh, like I was, uh, uh, misled. It was a Trina salad. It wasn't a Caesar salad. It should have been called something different. And I love what you just said. You have 
absolutely articulated the difference between online discourse and in real life discourse. Having fun and being snarky is part of online culture. I I like kind of convinced that that places with uh, strong food cultures, there's a lot of like argumentation around yeah this kind of stuff like who does the better version of this and yeah. blah 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 and and you know the conversations can come across as like serious and i guess i also think of sorry i should go back and say i also think of like the the sort of obsession over who invented you know noodles or pasta and whether it's spaghetti or noodles or whatever <laughs> you know but i don't think that like i i think that that is always a something that you see in in strong food cultures but um, that it shouldn't be like taken too seriously or we shouldn't be taking those people too seriously, but it's just kind of a way of engaging with the feelings that people have yeah. about this kind of stuff. And, you know, I kind of joke to my friend that this is my an- ancestral culture, ancestral cuisine, <laughs> because my dad grew up in the city, right? And, yeah. and uh, he grew- his uncle had a, a Italian-American restaurant, and so I grew up eating a lot of this. Let's go back to that. I'd like to get a little bit of your background. I have so many questions to ask you, like two pages of notes, um, because I love your work. But you grew up around food culture in New York City. Where did you start writing about food? Um, Where did I start writing about food? That's a good question. I, like, so my dad's uncle, like I said, had a restaurant, and my older brother is a chef. Mm. And uh, I have a cousin who's a cook, and I have a cousin who owned bars. Um, And those are my mom's side of the family so it's on both sides of my family that people are involved in restaurants and I think that because of that and because of my dad cooking five days a week when I was younger and sort of always orienting anywhere he any trip he took around food and things that you could see it kind of made it a part of my life and it may have not in a way that it was not for a lot of people that I was friends with as a child and so I when I was in college at Fordham I um which was my first time living in New York. I grew up in around New Haven and I was living in the Bronx and um, I would kind of just go around and go find restaurants and um, just like walk around the place. And my first time where I was actually trying to write, um, like pursuing writing, I, I got an internship at, back when Ed Levine was running Series Seas. Um And then through that, I eventually met Max Falkowitz, um, who you know, had a big part in me actually, like, doing this. That's great. That's cool that you mentioned Max and somebody who it sounds like was a bit of a mentor to you. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we're, the, I don't even know how old Max is, but I always think of us as somewhere between a year and a half to two years apart, which I think is accurate. But I've always also thought of him in, in that capacity. Yeah. Um, been, you know, because he has a very... Uh, uh, um, He's a wise man. Yeah. He's wise. wise. <laughs> He's also so generous and kind. He's a very kind human being. I've really enjoyed my time with Max. It's cool. Yeah, he um, opened up opportunities for me to write about stuff that I don't think that I necessarily would have otherwise. I wrote, um, he let me write about restaurants in the Bronx on a weekly basis at one point. That's cool. I was doing because I went to Fordham, not, I don't know that I necessarily should have been the person doing that, but he, but he let me. And I, I also discovered through doing work for him that like my, the first real, real reporting I did was for him. And a lot of that was about the impact of Hurricane Sandy on the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was kind of how I found out that I actually, reporting itself, like the the reporting, not even just writing, is something that really interested me. Are you self-trained in the reporting? You didn't go to journalism school? No, I I studied English sort of listlessly. Same. (laughs) And yeah, I shouldn't say sort of extremely listlessly. (laughs) Um, I I had such a lack of direction in college that I ended up taking a, a minor in philosophy with this one professor, not because I meant to, but just because I liked her classes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Jennifer Gossetti, and she's really, um, she also had like a very big impression on me. Um, 
And for a while, I was really into aesthetics because of her. Yeah. Um, but there was no training. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of reporting, how to report, uh, how to write. <laughs> so where did you get the training? I know Max played a role and you were getting line edits for your, your dispatches in the Bronx, but were you uh, mentored or did you work anywhere else before you got landed at Grub Street? So the reporting on Hurricane Sandy's kind of caught the eye of Hugh Merwin, who's another yeah. person who used to work at Grub Street and New York Magazine, who's a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and through him, I started freelancing. Oh, right on. Um, and early on, I would say, like, I wasn't really, you know, I did a few freelance stories and then I got a job um, at Grub Street and it was much more of a blog back then. So I wasn't really reporting very much because I was writing like 30 to 50 blog posts a month <laughs> and doing restaurant listings. Now, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't reporting the way that I am now. Um, I mean, it really taps into how food writing in many ways and in, in some outlets is a real trade and you learn on the fly and it's about repetition and it's about getting line edits from different vo people, but also going out there and doing the work. Yeah, I think that there's like two separate things that come to mind. One of them is that writing that volume of blogs is a really good way of getting a lot of bad writing out of you and helping you. <laughs> you know, it doesn't help you with much longer, longer form writing, but it, but short form writing, whatever you want to call it, is really difficult in its own ways. And it, and it helps you and trains you a lot, especially because you're not necessarily writing about anything that's in, that's very important or that you care about. Yeah. Um, and you have to find ways to make things interesting that you might not be that interested in. I'll also add the level of who you're writing for. You're not just writing for your own blog. You're writing for your magazine. Real editorial standards. You can't fuck up facts. I mean, you really got to make sure your stuff is tight, which I think makes great journalists come out of these places like like New York Mag or, or New York Times, et cetera. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that like I certainly have made a, a, a number of mistakes in my time. And it's really like you kind of learn through that. Well, one that that is not a fun process. <laughs> it kind of sucks. It really sucks. It really nothing is worse than getting the nine ten a.m. email or especially call from a angry person. This does happen. <laughs> well, it happens for a lot of reasons. This happens because you did your great job too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, 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 like I said, it started in two thousand fifteen, and I, I feel like the first. I'm trying, the first piece of reporting that I can remember doing off the top of my head, I didn't go back and look, sorry, uh, was about, we got a tip from somebody about the, um, was it 2016 or 2017? It must have been 2017. Um, it was about the, the Koi uh, restaurant in the Trump Soho closing because business had gone down so much. Mm. And... We thought it my I think my editor said at the time that he thought it was a quick three sentence thing, but I ended up finding various people, including a bus, a former bus boy who had, you know, recorded some video and posted on social media talking about Trump um, and his issues with Trump and so on. And we turned it into this little report mm. talking to people. Um, and I got like, I remember getting a really good quote from that person where he said something along the lines of even the Kardashians stopped coming. <laughs> but that it's experience your, sort of helped me also. It's your kickoff. I love people. that. You could find it, you know, just by doing the actual reporting and hanging out with these people. Yeah. A bit. I think I was able to see through that also, you know, there was so much reporting that came out. It, I think that that was kind of on the early end of this about, you know, how Trump's presidency was affecting his business. And it was very negatively affecting it in liberal enclaves, but 
you know, at the hotel in Washington, it was booming because everybody wanted to curry favor with him and in yeah. conservative areas. And that really played out over time. And I mean, that's still something you, you can kind of, you can take that and see things that are still going on. Um, really taps into your reporting, the, the types of stories you do at Grub Street and New York Magazine, because you do cover these broad topics of like how Trump's presidency is affecting the restaurant industry in New York. But you also write dispatches like what to eat. It's like a bit of a, it's called a header that you use. How do you decide on what stories to write for that what to eat rubric? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I The most recent one that I did, and that's like a, a shared rubric, right? Um, but the most recent one I did was about this little Nigerian place in, in Bed-Stuy called uh, Akara House. Um, and it just, like, I, I, I just came across it and it looked interesting. And um, I thought that, like, you know, the, the guy, he makes, he takes this, this um, fritter, the Akara, and puts it in bread, which is something that um, someone of Nigerian descent could tell you is not anything new. He just kind of he 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 kind of just adds a few things to it that people wouldn't otherwise, and, or that might be um, heresy, mm. <laughs> like some pickles and some mayonnaise. He's having fun with cheese. it and being a little more creative in his own way. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out he used to work at McDonald's. Yeah. And that was his first job here, and he sort of has applied this sort of um, American fast food approach to this other food, and he just was a really interesting character, but. I think that if I f- see something that looks different from what I've seen covered recently otherwise and the like the food could potentially be good and sometimes it's not mm-hmm. um and then you obviously. have to kind of scrap it right I mean cuz like the is there like a north star that like the food actually has to taste good or is it like this is like pretty good but there's a really nice narrative here and a nice person I want to write about That's a good question I think it depends on the story of course like I'm uh, I talked to m- some coworkers about this and other people that it's like, you know, it really depends on the story, but I'm not a critic. So, you know, when I wrote about that place where I'll rip house, whatever I feel about the food doesn't actually really matter, even though I like the food. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more about the people in the place. And I think in this column, it does matter that the food is actually at least like, it, I think it's decent. Yeah. Um, but you want to find for me, it's some trying to find something that has not otherwise been covered because, you know, there's so much uh, information flowing into your inbox or just people who have resources um, who are able to get exposure because of that. And I think the usefulness of this column for me anyways mm-hmm. is to try to point people to other things that they might otherwise not That's, know love about. That. Love to hear that. I, I think of that when I read that with, with what you're writing, or what Tammy's writing or what others on your staff are writing, it's usually a little bit more of that Jonathan Goldian style of going out, not to use a bad reference, but just going out into the field. I don't want to talk about Jonathan Gold anymore in here. Um, it's like going out into the burrows and like finding cool shit that people should be reading about. Yeah, I think it's interesting you you bring that up or that we're talking about this because, you know, you would it was the whole thing about the Internet and the democratization of information and social media. And like anyone can post and, and mm-hmm. anyone can share places. And, you know, there's, we all get, I think maybe especially older millennials and Gen Xers and whatever, you, you get this this um, choice fatigue, is that what they call it? Like choice paralysis, you have mm-hmm. so many options. But I think with the, just the overflow of information, but I also think that despite this sort of overflow of opinions, everyone's kind of talking about the same places over and over again, and it hasn't actually widened the conversation in the way that 
people might have hoped it would. Now, I think there's also just a limited amount of interesting things, even as I would like agree with that point. I think that's what I think about. I think, and especially when you're committing a photo shoot to it, you're committing yeah. space to it. If it's like you really want it to hit, you have to be have some discerning taste. Um, I'm one of those cane carrying uh, geriatric millennials as well. And I feel like choice fatigue is all about New York City right now. And I'm like, how the fuck do people keep up with it all? You clearly are through your reporting. I think I try. <laughs> I think it's impossible to keep up with everything, though. I think I talked to um, another like another person about this recently that, you know, how do you even like I can't I can't understand how someone could possibly keep up with everything happening around the country. I think it's hard enough to do it in one major city. Whether yeah, that's New York or Los Angeles or Houston or Chicago uh, or San Francisco. Like, you know, it does not even have to have to be as big as as New York City. It could be, you know, a much smaller place like yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, like Pushpoon, uh, right. Eliezer, Sontag. Yeah. Yeah, that's those, tough. Those are tough jobs. Those, those national restaurant beats are near impossible. I have some, like, real nitty-gritty questions about Grub Street, like, tied to specific stories you've written and also some general questions. But first, I have to ask, when Eater and Grub Street merged... What was that like? Because, like, I remember a time when Eater and Grub Street were, like, bitter rivals and, like, fighting for scoops. And I think you obviously both really fight for scoops as part of being a journalist, um, be it food or politics or whatever. How the fuck do you guys work together, Eater and Grub Street, or do you not work together? Up until recently, I would say we didn't work together. I would say we still don't. There was a couple um, instances. There were a couple instances at which... Um, there were kind of collaborative processes and I'm forgetting off the top of my head what they were, mm. but it was kind of stuff about eating around the city and so on. But I, I mean, you know, when the, when Vox bought New York magazine, Amanda sent me a nice email and I'm, have been friendly with various people who have worked there, but I would say that like for me in particular, maybe Mike's, my, my answer to uh, about this leans far in one direction because of who I am, but, um, I don't really feel like we work together. And I don't think that's a, I think that's a good thing because there are so many fewer websites. Um, I think that Grub Street's identity is really tied to New York Magazine. It's just an extension of that. And Mm -hmm. so it's a different project than Eater, um, which is, you know, one, it's much smaller and it's just about New York. Yeah. And, you know, Eater is this huge uh, network of websites and there's a lot of travel stuff that they've really leaned into. And there's a lot of sort of um, like maps and, and, and mm-hmm. sort of a higher volume of service stuff, I would say. But I, I feel... What a well-prepped answer. Like you really, <laughs> I feel like you broke down the digital strategy of these two brands in a very clear way. You're not the first person to ask me about that. I know. It's like clearly like your go-to, some some speech about it. But I, I feel like um, reading you in the pages of New York Bank, when you actually subscribe to it, you see your name pop up and Tammy's name and all your other colleagues pop up in the pages. So you got to work on a print deadline, it seems, quite often. Yeah, I mean, especially right now, I mean, we there's like a, a few people to draw from on staff. Um, there's two of us that are attached to the website, me and Tammy, and then well, Alan also, but he's editing, so he's right to significant. Yeah, you guys don't have a huge staff. It's pretty impressive, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, there's Alex is doing the newsletter, too, um, the year right in New York this year, so we we have that. Yeah, right, of course. But there's not, no, it's it's only a couple people. It's cool. Um, keep it small, keep it lean, keep it, keep it fighting. I think, you know, it was nice when there were a couple more people. And obviously, <laughs> Sorry. R- Robin Robin left last year, and, and Adam <laughs> is still around, but he's sort of doing a variety of things and not yeah. being a restaurant critic. But um, it, I think it does, like when you have like a, a, a smaller group of people, maybe it does allow for that sort of identity to be shaped more easily yeah, or it's presented cool. more easily. 
All right, so you've been on the superiority burger from day one, and I, I, it's a bit like I've literally talked about it every show, but I think it's always funny to, to talk about a, a, a very, very covered, uh, rightly, rightfully so restaurant. But you had a really early look in at, and you clearly have a relation with Brooks Headley, the chef. But I'd like to just get your take, and I'll, I'm going to get into some specific questions about New York. But just to kick it off, what is happening here at the former Odessa and Avenue A? How do you mean? Like, is <laughs> is it like? It seems pretty dope to me. I haven't been. I'm going to go soon. But you, you've been on the story, though, since last year. I mean, mm-hmm. you've been, which I love. I love when you stick with stories. You wrote follow-up recently as well. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. So I um, I got into the friends and family through a friend. <laughs> I didn't get an invite. Um, but I was able to go because of that. And but you wrote something well before that. Well, when, so we did this big profile. Yeah, that's sorry. the thing. I'm thinking, like, before you wrote a large profile. Okay, let me start over. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... The question kept coming up, when is this place going to open again? Yeah. Um, we, it was very much on a normal timeline, but it has a very uh, devoted group like of, of fans, uh, yeah. customers. I, I'd realized recently that I have gone, the restaurant I've gone to the most is Great New York Noodle Town. Yeah. But the restaurant that I have been to the most with one person is Superior Burger. And I always go with my friend Gabby, who works at GQ, or I've gone most with her. Um and like I, we would just go once a month and there are a lot of people like that. And so people were wondering, and I think it was in December that it sort of, it kept seeming like he was going to open it up and that would happen every two months or whatever. So, um, I reached out to him in December and we talked on the phone a little bit and, um, eventually I got, you know, got around to getting him to, uh, letting us do this profile of him. We wanted to write a story that was a little bit more about who he was as a person yeah. or who he is as a person. Um, and things it about- was that's hard to do with Brooks Headley. Why do you say that? I think it's hard to pin him down. Of what kind? Of, I mean, he's got so many. Um, he's got a mystique around him. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't do a ton of press, and he feels like there was. I mean, I love uh-huh. the guy. I love his food. He's a very generous guy, and I, I think he's a very kind person. I just feel like profile is challenging with him. Yeah. No, I was just curious what you thought. I don't think you're totally wrong, and I don't think he's always inclined to do it. Um, in fact, I think he might say he's disinclined. Yeah. Um, and he is this sort of um, uh, magnetic, he has a magnetic personality, I think, and is also just like has an, an, an enormous amount of energy and is very obsessive and can just start talking. He's the kind of person that um, you can ask him a question and you're kind of expecting two sentences and he'll he'll give you like 800 words worth of an answer. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that also, you know, with regards to ex- trying to explain a little bit more about, trying to figure out a little bit more about who he is and... Um, you know, one of the things that that had sort of occurred to me or bothered me, I guess, was I, I really don't like the way that people describe him as a punk rock chef. And I was never in a band. I was never as deep into it as him. But I like grew up listening to a lot of that music. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, sometimes I would share songs with him and stuff and we would talk about that. I think that he is someone who maybe has done a little bit um more with his light. I mean, the Del Posto work. I mean, he won James Beard Awards at Del Posto. He was like the top pastry yeah. chef in America. I mean, it was no joke. That was not an accident. The guy worked really hard at his craft and he excelled. Yeah, and it comes across as like, I think because he, um, you know, there's this whole thing in basketball where it's like, oh, you know, the guy, you discover the the the, the amazing player who's, uh, or the amazing player who's just discovered on a pickup court somewhere. It's like, that doesn't really exist. But I think Brooks's lack of formal training and the fact that he sort of just fell into it made him very identifiable to a lot of yeah. people because it wasn't like, oh, I'm, um, you know, a 16-year-old and I know what I want to do with my life. And I think also, like, especially in media, you do have a lot of career people like that who did know that they wanted 
to be a writer or something when they were 17. And they're like, oh, this is so cool. This guy just ended up, uh, he just fell into this and he's one of the the like best people it's, uh, at what he does. There's a scene in Fancy Desserts, his first cookbook, where he's bit, li- literally jumping a fence carrying the cookbooks that he is taking from the restaurant he was fired from. I'm oh, yeah, super yeah, yeah. paraphrasing. I know I don't know if he's fired, <laughs> but he's like, there's just like a lot of like self drivenness for him towards his career in food. And it wasn't, he like really is self-made in that way. I think, yeah. I mean, this ties into this that I had thought about, you know, well, I don't think anyone had tried to answer the question of why is this, why is he so obsessive? Um, because he is a very obsessive person, right? Yeah. I mean that in a very complimentary way. Cause it, you know, it, it's resulted in this incredibly interesting place that I don't really feel like is in like anywhere else in New York. But you know, when you were one of the interviews, I can't remember, off the top of my head, if it was, you know, we went to a diner in Chelsea and hung out there and I, I went to the original Superior Burger and then we went to the new one before it was finished. At some point, he said this quote to me that we have in the story about just, you know, once the restaurant opens, he just wants to work there and die. <laughs> work there and fucking die. And I'm like, oh, that's a great quote. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, uh, I would joke to other people that, you know, if, if someone said that in 2021, they'd get they get canceled during the, yeah. <laughs> the quiet quitting era. Yeah. Um, but he, he's sort of just someone who uh, he clearly is like obsessed with the place and cares a lot about it and is sort of dedicated to, but in a way that, that I don't know. I mean, I don't want to project my ideas onto him, but um, it seems to me that he was uh, invigorated by the fact that he was actually like around people at this place yeah. at the original one. And then now versus being back in a kitchen um, yeah, playing more like restaurateur than chef, and it seems like he's front of house more. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I feel that that he strikes me as someone who cares a lot about people um, in his life, and I think that that is like, like doing this sort of work can be. It's obviously incredibly exhausting work when you're um, running a restaurant like a small restaurant like mm-hmm. he was. Um, but I, you know, and regardless of 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 that impact on you, it can also be really rewarding to. Um, to do this sort of work when you are someone who cares a lot about people. So who's a chef who you've absolutely loved to write about? And it maybe isn't like you love the person as a person, but you just loved profiling them and writing about them. Brooks would be the most recent example because I got to spend a bunch of time with somebody um, and talk to him and try to figure out a little bit about his place and his thing and what's going on. But I also, when you ask that question, I think about people I've written about who otherwise weren't covered um, there was this couple in Queens who started a, a, a sort of Instagram bakery that's not uh, operating right now, but they were sort of just trying to like figure out what it looked like for them to run their own business. Um, and I just discovered them randomly because I think that like another cook I know had told me about it or something like that. Um, I wrote a story about this cook who worked at Momofuku and a bunch of other restaurants um, named Courtney. Kennedy, who left restaurants to work in a hospital and cook for cancer patients. And this was at the beginning of COVID. And I think that, that you know, when I think about what I want to write about profiles, it's some combination of those two things. I either want to try to, like, you know, be able to spend a bunch of time with somebody in the way that I did with Brooks to sort of write something about them that is maybe um, different than what other people have or I just want to spend, I mean, I'm like, this goes back to that idea of looking for things that people aren't otherwise talking mm-hmm. about or wouldn't otherwise talk about. I mean, this, the, the cook Courtney who works at the hospital, um, I can't tell you how I found her. I don't remember. I think that I had been thinking about looking for people who 
left the restaurant industry. This was in 2021, mm-hmm. and um, I was looking for people who had who had left and gotten new jobs just to talk to them. And I just sort of in that process stumbled upon her. Um, and it was just really interesting because I, for me, because I, I, you know, she's just continuing to live a normal life completely outside of restaurants, completely outside of the press. It's not like, um, you know, I don't, I don't like imagine that, that anything else will be written about her. Um, yeah, but it's it's the reason we do the work is because we get to enter these worlds and get to meet people who are doing something that's so far out of our like small little world that we live in, and it's just like it's absolutely refreshing, right? It's it gives you like life to like find a Courtney and be able to figure out how she's been able to parlay this back of house cooking job into something that seems extremely meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think I realized in the course of reporting that I most it's I just like talking to people. Yeah, right on. <laughs> um yeah. and learning about what's going on in their lives and why they're doing the things they're doing because, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't have made that switch that she made when she made it, which was that she this was at the beginning of of COVID and she went to work in a hospital and I think a lot of people would have been like, ah, <laughs> understandably they would have like, you know, stayed on unemployment or something for whatever their reasons were. Um, you know, or they just didn't want to go work in a hospital. Um, but this is like, you know, other people have talked about this, the, um, uh, you know, the importance or the, the lack of attention we give to food in these sort of spaces like hospitals and, and, um, you know, retirement homes and, and assisted care facilities and stuff and the people doing that work. It's just, it's tough to, to make the audience care, the reader care. Yeah. It's part of your job. It's like the real challenge is to write a piece that actually will actually get some pickup and people will, will give a shit about when in fact Grub Street is there to serve people who want to eat out and dine out. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, there's a conflict that a lot of people come up against. I, I, I don't want to say who said this to me, but because I, this was a private conversation, <laughs> yeah. but somebody else said something to me about feeling that, you know, some writers like are, are sort of don't necessarily actually want to write about restaurants. They want to write about other things, but they end up writing about restaurants. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it, it's, you can want to cover certain kinds of things, but you're right that ultimately like this website is, um, a website about like restaurants and the restaurant industry and stuff. And I, I don't, I, see that as a limitation at all absolutely not i mean that's not what i'm saying because i think you no. have a real skill at, at bringing both voices to your your your, your pages and your, and your coverage i yeah i mean i think that when i say that the i'm going to repeat something i've said to other people which is that again it, this is just something that occurred to me over the last few years i guess um during covid or or, or whatever um which is that I think restaurants are are like a great way in which to write about cities and to do city reporting um, because like I take the example of that uh, neighborhood in the Bronx, Little Yemen. I started going there after like a year after college. I would just go eat there and there was a mosque. There were three Yemeni restaurants, a Palestinian restaurant, a few stores. It was a pretty small community. That's not where you see the Yemeni American community, whether new immigrants or um, long established people whose families have been here for a hundred plus years. Um, but over the last handful of years, it has grown into a much bigger neighborhood. And the reason why is because of the war and the, you know, um, the U S backed Saudi war in Yemen and what's happening there and what, what the Saudis are doing to Yemen and the drought and the famine. Mm-hmm. And so people are bringing family over and the neighborhood has grown enormously as a result of that. And I think that like, 
understandably, I don't mean this as a criticism because I think the same thing. It's like you're in New York and like, wow, look at all the food that I can eat. This is so amazing. Um, you know, I can have this, I can have tacos one day and sushi another day and um, arancini the other day. And But the reality the is- The combination of dishes, by the way, I'm into that. Put them all together. Yeah, they're pretty good on a plate. Yeah, <laughs> I'm into that. <laughs> but y- y- the reason why there's such diversity in New York is not always, like, the reasons aren't always good. In fact, a lot of the time it's like, you know, uh, people are here for bad reasons, whether it's war, um, fleeing persecution, mm-hmm. uh, society-wide or individual um, drought, famine. Like, and I think that that you know that story felt to me like a way of of like acknowledging the growth of the neighborhood and talking about it. And as opposed was, to like writing about, for example, like the best fatouche sandwich. If you're going to write about that, yeah. Population. As opposed to just doing a right. service guide, like you right. can point people to the restaurants and also talk about why the neighborhood exists. And I think that's I love that. so much more interesting than just being like, here are the ten things you should eat in little. Yeah. It's your tight tight editing though. It's a real skill. I mean, you you could definitely be long winded about some of this stuff, but I think keeping it really brisk and and covering these important topics while also giving service is the joy of reading your magazine. I want to transition and talk about this article you wrote. The best pizza in the world, I, I'm just emphasizing it, the best pizza in the world can be found in one square mile of Williamsburg. Wow, North Brooklyn is where the best pizza is in New York. Wow. I love it. Let's talk about that. I think it's a great, <laughs> great piece. It was You shined light on a lot of cool places. But what 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 got you into, into that thinking? So... I should think about how to say this because I don't want to. I don't want to talk shit about anyone I work with. I didn't write the headline. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, listen. It's it's a it's an issue that will be uh, forever part of of media and food writing. The writer don't kill the writer for the editor's deed. You gotta get people's attention. I think that that you know I uh, that wasn't my idea, even though it should have been because I should be paying enough attention to notice this. Um, that came from Alan, and then was done through. Uh, the print editors who are working on the reasons to love issue. Um, and would include Corey and Ryu. The, it was just sort of an observation that like all of a sudden over the last few years, there was such a concentration of high quality places in that neighborhood. And it started right with like best pizza. Yeah, of course. And then Williamsburg pizza and then has grown. And I think kind of like, look, I, I go around the city, uh, to like Southern Brooklyn and Staten Island. I, I think that I probably, I feel pretty confident saying I've spent more time on Staten Island than like anyone else who writes about um, like restaurants in New York who doesn't live there Mm -hmm. or isn't from there. Um, But it's sort of like you go to Staten Island, there's a ton of great pizza, but it's all spread across this huge borough. Yeah. I don't think there's anywhere else in the city. I think Pat's is pretty good. Pat's? Yeah. Oh, Joe and Pat's? Yeah, Joe and Pat's. I think Joe and Pat's is one of my, it's still one of my five favorite places. Me too. I don't think it's gotten any worse. No. Um, It's gotten better. It's great. Yeah. That place is awesome. Um, and it's, you know, that's real Italian-American culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to see some characters in there. Words you don't see in these places in Williamsburg so much. Although I think it's cool that a few of the places were opened up by guys who are from the sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 where like the pizza culture is strongest in New York. Like, you know, a couple of them are from, I think one of them is from Gravesend. I forget where the other one's from. Um, but you have this sort of actual connection to the like that 
sort of preserved Afara land, L&B Spumani land. That's part of New York pizza on the record. Culture. I've said it many times. Defara or no, L&B? definitely not L&B. <laughs> definitely not. Are you a Defara hater? I am. I edited a piece that Katie Parler wrote in 2014. Oh, right, right. That was my p- piece with Katie that I edited, and she got death that. threats for that. That's actually not yeah. A joke. She listened to my my interview with I'm Rick Easton. I don't know if it's going to be before or after you, but Rick and I get into that story a little bit. <laughs> I bet she did. I. Uh, Beatrice from, is that her name? The Gustiamo founder was pretty, I think, excited about that. She was like, fuck this place. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole, yeah. I mean, I have a friend who grew up going there because he uh, he's around my age, so he's 33, 32, I forget. And um, yeah, he would go there all the time as a kid. And I think that like, I think Adam Adam Kuban is that his last name? Yeah, Kuban. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, he sort of, I think, said it best to me, which is that, I think he said it best to me, which is that like it kind of the rise of that place coincided with the rise of blogs and also like the shrinking number of really high quality places. And so it sort of carried this whole mystique around. Yeah, it. I think like with Don, the guy, you know, the guy RIP, you know, doing the doing the slices and doing the olive oil shower every for every customer had something to do with it, too. Yeah, right. People, I think there's such an obsession in our culture. It's like at the same time as we have everything's a cheesecake factory menu. People are also obsessed <laughs> with like the the um the lone guy who's like devoted his life to the business and it's just his his identity is tied up with it and he's just like cobbling around there and you know if you went there you could you could track you know it getting worse over time or the fires uh sorry the pizza's like uh you know getting cooked a little too long in certain yeah places. but it's hard i mean consistency is impossible i mean with la- with labor costs and and just the way restaurants operate in such a small margin uh, to 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 be that that perfect experience every time for these fast casual style restaurants. People will say that to me too. Like, well, I went there once and I didn't like it. I'm like, well, then don't go back. But it doesn't De- mean it's bad. Definitely don't burn down a restaurant because of one visit. I think it's sort real. of a, yeah. Like for fast casual, I mean, if it's a fine dining and it's a multi course tasting, maybe that is met valid. But yeah, sure. Look, if you're paying like four, which I have not, but like if you're paying like four hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or whatever to go to La Bernadette. You know, that's especially if you're a normal person like us, mm-hmm. like, or anyone else, like, I don't know, anyone not making $300,000 yeah. a year, are you really able to do that more than once in your life? So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I like that review that Pete Wells did years ago about the Danielle, where he wrote about it, his own experience, and kind of pulled the old school trick and sent somebody else there. And it's like, it really matters, like, how that regular person is, is treated Absolutely. at a place like that to me, because I don't understand what is like uh good hospitality or whatever and i don't mean that in a restaurant sense i just mean that as human beings about like not giving some sort of special treatment or attention or care to somebody who you know really like like saved money to come to this place and is never going to be able to come back Mm -hmm. and then you're just not treating them as well as someone else who is vip and can come back that doesn't that's that doesn't feel like the right way of running a business to me chris let me ask you is there a particular neighborhood that you feel yourself leaning into a little bit more? And you just mentioned Staten Island, which is not a neighborhood, but a borough. And are you like particularly aware of like a Brooklyn bias in the writing for Grub Street? That's a good question. I don't think that I have a particular neighborhood at the moment. I'm trying to like find, I think I'm probably going through another process of trying to find some place like that. I mean, I think there's a lot of stories going on in Chinatown right now um, because of just the ongoing development and you know changes in downtown manhattan and not dime jail. square 
No, not well. Dime Square is part of it. The adjacent part of the conversation. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about Dime Square, but like, I feel the Chinatown conversation. You have to mention Dime Square. It's in the same quadrant. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's a. I. I, I was trying to. Think I mean, it's about Canal that. Street. I mean, Jesus. That's like that is Manhattan Chinatown. So. I mean, I. I would always go down there. Um, at first to go to. Um, was it Lamb Jiao? The old dumpling place. I don't. I, I'm forgetting if I'm messing up the name, but. That on East Broadway? Of, yeah, that was yeah. one of my favorite places. I love that place. So I would go down there all the time. Can't remember the name of it. Uh, yeah. And like hang out there because it was, I would go with a friend who I worked in a restaurant with and it was so cheap and that was like all I could afford at the time. But sorry, to jump back to your other question about Brooklyn, I mean, I think there's a, yeah, there's a bias towards, what do we call it now? People used to call it Brownstone Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't think that's what they call it anymore. Gentrified Brooklyn, whatever you want to call I it. I mean, all of Brooklyn North is gentrified in some way. Brooklyn north of Park Slope. Yeah. Or not right. Park Slope, Prospect Park. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's like a bias towards that in Manhattan in all coverage because those are places where you're going to find people who actually have resources uh, to hire PR, to get attention. I mean, I was, I felt like people would be like, Sunset Park has the best Mexican food in New York. And it's because all the writers who are, you know, <laughs> 15 years older than me all like live nearby. <laughs> people will talk about the places that are near them. And I don't, I it's like, you know, you have kids or you just have a life that you got to live or whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know. This goes back to something we were talking about before, which is just looking for stuff outside of that. Like, you know that you're going to get bombarded with, um, you know, like press releases and stuff about restaurants that are opening up in, in Williamsburg or, uh, the or Lower flat East Side iron, or yeah. the Flatiron or whatever, but also that those places are going to more easily gain your attention because, you know, a lot of people you know who are young are living there, and so, like, you might get fed them on Instagram. Which are your audience, too, like, Grub, like, disposable income, like, income, you have to, like, look at that, too, as your audience. Let me ask you about PR. You know, I'm certainly never going to say bad things about PR. It's part of our job, and they really, they're great people, and they work really hard, and I love working with PR. But if you're covering a beat like New York City restaurants, I mean, how much of the PR drives your narrative? Mine personally? Yeah. Uh, I try to let it, like, as little as possible. I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way towards no, anyone. No, you're I not have, saying it. Uh, f- like, one of my best friends from college works in PR, which happened to fall into that um, or go into that after college. Like, um, it's just I think that, like, the our job is to, is to like, kind of see – find a way through that and and i don't think that like that narrative that's being pitched to us is the real narrative i i mean like the well no you have to go there and do your work yeah but also i just mean like the collective narrative of all of this information that's being shared with us about like what's actually you know this is the most interesting restaurant in new york this is what's happening yada 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 but there's a whole city that none that exists completely outside of that and that is just sort of you could just completely ignore by only by only writing about or only going to places that have PR, but I sort of, I don't know. I mean, I I just think that, like, it's uh, really important to look for other things um, and find other people who don't have that because, like, I, I don't know, you know, if you're a regular person doing another job, you don't have time to go walking around looking for this sort of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, that's, it's like, pure part service of my journalism. It's, it's part of serving your reader and, and providing like a list of restaurants that are easily put into a phone and, and reserved on Resi. I have to ask though, like New York Meg in particular really thrives in access journalism. It's part of what you do. I mean, knowing the right people to get the right exclusives is part of that. So it seems like Grub Street probably does pedal in that a little bit. Like you need access to take photos super early of a restaurant, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, sorry, I would be like lying if that was not the case. <laughs> no, there's no, um, no secret either. I mean, it's part of like you know being in a space that has a that's closed the public. You have to get access to that space. Yeah, you do have to find a balance, and I think like one of the benefits of of uh, moving towards uh, a, a format where we publish less often is that like we don't have to write about every single restaurant that opens. You don't need to write – You like, no one really does. I mean, unless I, – I understand, like, the purpose in, like, a local – a super local journalism outfit. <laughs> Time on New York that. in 2001. <laughs> Patch or something, oh, right? Pa- yeah. Wait, Patch is still around? Patch is still around. Right, okay. No, uh, no shade whatsoever. I mean, it's cool. I didn't know that. But I think in in being able to be selective about it, like, I don't really need to – There's a, I'm not being asked to write about restaurant openings all the time. We can kind of – sometimes we do them through PR – but, you know, that a car house place, obviously, it was, there's no PR there. I just walked yeah. and found this guy. Um, and that was a place that had just opened. But, the, you know, another place like uh, Cafe Spaghetti is like yeah, everything, any kind of coverage of them is you have to go through PR. And it's mm-hmm. just kind of, okay, is there a story for us that actually feels like worth Or telling? the new Wiley Dufresne Pizza Place, which I feel is like super PR'd up, but it's probably pretty dope i haven't been there yet yeah me neither i need to my friend was asking me if i went and i have not but i think that it's just sort of figuring out that balance of writing yeah. about stuff that is outside of the um outside of the the sort of um mainstream conversation whatever um maybe that's not the best way to put it and and writing you know you do have to write about some stuff that's there's interesting stuff that's like locked behind yeah. the wall well, th- listeners, you've made it this far. I feel we've gotten really deep into like the actual the cause and effect of, of PR and, and journalism. And I think, Chris, you've been super open um, and cool about talking about pro- method and process because I think it's important because we really fetishize some of these restaurants that we see in New York Magazine. But there's a real process to get there. So I appreciate you being open about that. I got more questions specifically about your beat. Um, let me ask you. Is there a food that you really, really want to round up that you feel like maybe is on the verge of having a moment? Because we speak in moments because that's why you speak in editorial terms. Obviously, there's a lot of shit happening. But is there something that, you know, you're looking at? I don't really know if there is something at the moment. Are you, like, interested in a food that enough that you want to actually dedicate an afternoon or a couple afternoons or even a, a month of going out and having five to eight versions of it. Okay, there's something a friend of mine told me, um, gave the idea to me that I should be doing and that I have been trying to do a little <laughs> here and there, which is to, um, like, write about all the different chicken rice in New York, whether yeah. it's, like, Hainan chicken rice or, you know, halal chicken rice or Dominican versions of chicken rice and so on and so on and try to catalog. Because there's been such an explosion of, like, there's the halal chicken and rice, but there's been such an explosion recently which I feel like started in like 2018 of, of Hainan chicken rice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the different versions, um, the, the Thai version and, and so on and so on. But like, to be honest, yeah, that's that's probably that's probably it. Uh, I've been e- eating like an enormous amount of salad. <laughs> Is it for a piece? No, I just like <laughs> Is making... Is it for health? Is it for preser- self-preservation? I just like eating salad at home. It's a beautiful thing. Um I think it's probably for health. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely for health. I'm going to stop lying. Um, I, I, I To try to just, you know, eat different things at home. I don't know. I, I yeah, that's like mostly what I've been making. Do you have home. go-to restaurant salads? <sighs> I mean, I'll eat a Caesar salad, any Italian restaurant I go to, even if I know it's going to be bad. Nice. I think it's more like, do I have go-to? I think it'd be more whether I have like a go-to restaurant salad 
dressing. I because I, I don't know. I I can't think of a single place where I'm like, oh yeah, definitely eat that salad all the time when I go there. You know, the the salads that Marie would make at Ops were really good. Yeah, but she's not. Well, they're still making good salads, but she's doing the wine store oh. now. Um, I think of uh, Buttermilk Channel's uh, lamb shoulder salad, Cornichon, super do- and eggs. It's like a cob, but with lamb shoulder. I've never had that. Yeah, before. I don't know. I'm just shouting out a random restaurant, <laughs> but it's, it's super good. <laughs> no, keep. We can keep going. Yeah, we we can go like toe to toe with salads, but I think it's cool that um, you're thinking about chicken and rice, chicken rice, because I think it's such a smart, be a, such a great piece to like kind of break down the different it factors that make thing make it different. I think what my friend was getting at, uh, to give her credit, is that it, it's just one of those foods that, that there seems to be like a different version of it in many, many, many different cultures. Like, you know, it's kind of hard to think of a culture that eats rice. That I mean, yeah. any culture that eats rice has a version of this. What's the sleeper trend that you're seeing right now? Like a real like under the radar that you might be writing about soon or just like you're observing and you're feeling it right now? I find that a that a lot of like trends in food and in restaurants, I, I don't know that I buy into most of it. And so I think that when I'm sort of looking at this, it's kind of like I wish that writing about that more writing about trends was more tongue in cheek. Um, I think the only real drinks trend, the only drinks trend that I think is real from the last few years is the espresso martini. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that was like when. But Peggy Hughes was totally right about that when she wrote about it for the New York Times two and a half years ago, whatever, whenever it was. But, you know, you go to a restaurant, like an Italian-American restaurant in, in Bay Ridge or something, and you're going to see a bunch of people drinking espresso martinis, like, old, you know, older women and, and men um, who may not have been doing it a few years ago, or maybe they were, but it just sort of feels like, oh, well, if it's happening here, it's really actually happening everywhere. It's not just, you know, it, I have a friend who I grew up with who's, like, the most normie person I know, mm-hmm. and he talks about them. So, Chris... When do you feel the most pressure when you're when you're on the clock when you're when you're working for Grub Street? Well, I'm afraid of somebody uh, scooping me on a story that I care a lot about. Um, you know, I, I I definitely felt a lot of pressure back when I was like it's a different sort of pressure than when I started the job when I was writing thirty to fifty blog posts a month, but those were like seventy five words, and blah blah blah. But now it's just like, oh, I'm putting all this work into a, into this scoop. Um, maybe I found out about something by probing. Maybe somebody came to me, and I don't. You never really know if someone else knows about something too. Um, and so then you get like, you know, a little paranoid. A little you paranoid. You don't want to talk about it with anyone. You have a lot of friends in the industry, and you just don't want to talk about a story that you're working on. I don't. You you can tell one person, and they might tell somebody else. And I I mean, I'm a gossip too, so I don't really. I think I just assume everyone talks to everyone about everything because that's what I do. It's true. It's what I do too. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do try it when it's like serious. I try to respect it, but yeah, um, we're joking. Obviously. I will respect it. Yeah, <laughs> we're talking about like like ramen. We're not talking about like you know <laughs> crazy real life stuff. But yeah, it's when like you you know you have a good story and you don't want someone else to to write about it because why would you want someone else to write about it when you could write about it? Yeah, I think scoop culture has changed dramatically. I think when I started writing about food, it was right when Amanda and Locke launched Eater and then Ozerski launched Grub soon after. I think that's how it went. And it was, like, really aggressive, like, the the scoop culture. Yeah, Adam Platt has talked to me about this a bit because he was around as the New York Magazine critic, and it was sort of just, like— this constant flow of little tidbits of it. It wasn't like here's a huge story like no. publishing this. It's like uh, Jason Neroni has a new cocktail bar 
down the street from his I love that name. I love Jason. It's like such a name from the 09. Yeah, and it gets even more specific where it's like, you know, they're not, then they're serving a chicken sandwich there. Right. The new dish on Fridays. Is, yeah, and then like it's like grub, eater, timeout, tasting table used to have restaurant beat, village voice. Yeah. This is back in the series eats used to have restaurant beat. Yeah. New York Times, of course, had restaurant beat. Time out, I think I said. But there's there was like eight publications covering New York City restaurant news. And then I was like working at like peripheral publications at the time, nipping at the ankles. And like we were all trying to get scoops. It's almost like in hindsight, like a cosplay, like we were doing some kind of like political reporting cosplay. On the flip, though, I think that shit's actually more interesting and important than the mechanisms of 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 the you know the White House, like some of the shit that was being published. So I think I'm not trying to come down on that era. I just think it was kind of f- really funny to look back at like the shit that we were fighting for. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish I was there because I could like speak to some of the stuff that Adam was saying. But I and other people have said to me, but that it was yeah, it was just like this constant kind of slap fight to try to you know come out on top and who could get like the most scoops and stuff. But they didn't necessarily always add up to. It was very minute details, right? And it didn't necessarily always add up to all that much. No, it was like usually openings. But it wasn't fun. It was fun to do. It was like mostly openings, like blank yeah. opening. And it was like, like obviously Plywood Report was like a real meme before meme was a thing at Eater. And like the idea that you were actually peeking in and taking a photo of a space that like Wiley Dufresne is opening. Right. And there was like that, the, the maybe, uh, the one that I always think about is... Uh, you know, the the drama that Josh caused by, Josh Wazowski caused by writing about his wedding. Oh, no, it was, it was one of Chang's <laughs> new restaurants. Oh, sorry, there's a lot of controversy with that well, guy. Well, yeah, so Rest specifically one of the early, <laughs> the early Momofuku is not the first one. Maybe it was, maybe it was the second restaurant, maybe it was the third. And he, like, had got caught wind that it was opening yeah. and he went and he published a little blog about it. I think that's how it went. Yeah. But anyways, he, Chang, I think, got really pissed at him because it was supposed to run as like some sort of story. And I think it was supposed to be a time story or something. And, and Josh just wrote about it. And he's like, well, what do you like, you know, there's this classic thing that happens. And in, in, hmm. um, I think that sometimes happens in food because of um, food media, because of the. Um, uh, the weight of the gray lady. Yeah, well, I was going to say more that like you get instances where I think people will be like, you have to, you can't write about that. It's like, well, what do you mean? You can't, I can't write about it. The story's like this is public information. Your restaurant's open, or it's on the SLA website. You can't tell me that I can't publish that. Yeah, um, because I think that there's some weird power dynamic there, and it's just not like you know, it's it's lifestyle journalism. So the sort of like, I don't know, maybe they, maybe some people think they can push the people writing about it around. Oh, a they bit more. certainly can. If without experience and and knowing what you're doing, you can be pushed around very easily, especially when given the Times embargo stuff, which I think is always a rich topic um but the times in fairness puts asses in the seats a, a mention in the times is certainly a mention in grub street and you fought for embargo and, and you know you fought for exclusivity because it puts asses in the seat in new york city yeah i mean that's another part of the process we were talking about earlier right where it's like there's a sort of thing that you have to negotiate sometimes with people it's like well you know yeah we're gonna write about this but if but if you you know, everybody, every outlet does this thing where they, you know, they request that no one else gets to write about something, um, which I find to be a very awkward conversation to participate in um, because it can feel very naked. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, but then it's the same thing. It's like, well, if we're going to devote this time to this story, then we want to have the story. We don't want, like, someone else to just be publishing the same thing we're publishing because what does that do for us? Yeah. Um, but the Times totally puts people into restaurants. And I, you know, I know New York Magazine does too. Um 
because like, I mean, I think with the times, it's like the scope of the place um, is so big. And with New York Magazine, it's, you know, like you're, we're talking earlier about like sort of a, a like a discerning identity or whatever, mm-hmm. you, however you want to put it. Um, and, you know, I always think about this with critics that or writers in general that like it doesn't really matter whether I agree with you. It just kind of it matters that I know what you think. Um, like that. Yeah, I fully agree with that when I'm thinking about competition. Really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast, Chris Crawley. Thanks. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.